Well, hey everybody, I am excited to be with you once again. My name is Heath Haynes. Uh, you may or may not know, probably heard this before, I'm one of the elders at the bridge and as well as uh, the, the leader of the Heights House Church. Um, you know, it, it, getting into today, there's this kind of common phrase or idea that you gotta represent. Um, you know, when you think about that, to represent, the Urban Dictionary defines represent as go and be a good example to the others of your group or in your position, right? So we get the concept, right? Represent your family, represent your company, represent your team. It means to, you know, to go out and do what you do in a way that reflects the value of that which you're representing, the talent, the work ethic, and to do it kind of in the way that they would do it and to do it successfully. You know, when you think about represent for better or for worse, um, throughout my life, I've spent a lot of time uh, thinking about how I represent myself and, and about the things that I represent. Um, you know, I remember kind of it started growing up, I was pretty worried about how I represented my morality. You know, I wanted to be a good boy. I wanted people to think of me as a good boy and I, and I hated getting in trouble and disappointing people. And, and then it kind of went on as I went, I wanted to represent my own coolness. Um, and then as I went, I wanted to represent my family. You know, and even now, now I, I, often, I often feel pressure to represent my own competency. Um, that, that's pretty real. Um, and if I'm honest, I've always found uh, these pursuits to be, to be futile um, and ultimately not leading to the realities of, of personal fulfillment, but even more eternal fulfillment. Um, and I imagine I'm not alone in this. Um, I know that, that you and I, we all find ourselves worrying about how we are representing certain aspects of, of who we see ourselves to be. My prayer for all of us is that we don't end up putting our energy into representing uh, futile, temporal things. Today, as we come into Mark 11, as we continue our study through Mark, we will see that as we follow King Jesus to the cross, there is a call for our lives to represent all that Christ is and what he came to do. Before we go any further, I'd love to pray. Um, let's pray. Uh, so Lord, um, we just want to come before you now, each of us as we are in this moment, uh, listening to or watching this teaching. Um, Lord, just asking you for, to help us right now, just kind of be still, um, to, to, to listen. Lord, to have open hands and, and as best as we know how, to really kind of open up our lives, our hearts, our minds, Lord, to what you have now. I pray that we would have a posture of humility as well as um, a heart of expectancy and how you would encounter us. Lord, I pray as we have spent time with you this week in your word, and even now as we come to your word, that we know that you desire and promise, Lord, to work and power by the work of the Holy Spirit or through this word, Lord, for our own freedom and transformation and good as well as for your glory, God. So we just wanna to surrender to you now uh, work in our midst, bring fruit in our lives, or that you would be glorified, that the world would know Jesus in your name. Amen. Amen. So as we've been studying through Mark, especially now that as we turn the corner and, and looking at Mark 9 through 16, as we are following Jesus to the cross, this, 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 
this phrase from Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, has constantly just resurfaced. And it's this famous, this famous statement that he wrote, when Christ calls a person, he bids them come and die. And, you know, and, and, and as we are in Mark, we, we've already said it, you know, Mark writes, his, 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 his way of writing is this high-paced, high-impact kind of highlight reel of Jesus' ministry. And so as we find ourselves in this, this latter half of Mark, where we're picking up pace of Jesus going to the cross and we're following him, following him there, we're actually finding ourselves being confronted once again with this call to come and die. Um, just to give you a heads up, this is not going to let up. It's a building snowball. Um, each week, we are going to be invited into another opportunity to die to ourselves, but take heart. I pray that doesn't exasperate you because I promise you and I want to invite you into the reality that we will also see how that surrender, that response to the call to come and die, also leads to our true freedom and joy. So today, we're going to kind of zoom in to just this one part of, of Mark 11 as Jesus enters into the temple and clears it out. So read with me now, looking at Mark 11, 15 through 19. It says this, it says, <clears throat> And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And so we're in this scene, right? Jesus is in his disciples. They come into Jerusalem. They go into the temple and Jesus comes to do work, right? And, and, and he actually went the night before, saw it. He's like, man, I'm coming back tomorrow. Came back and does this. He goes in, he starts wrecking the place. He starts turning over tables. And right, we, and we just need to know, think about the temple, right? The temple is the sacred and holy place of the people of Israel, the place that the literal presence of God dwelled and where anyone that desired to worship him would come to do that. And this area where Jesus is turning over tables was the area called the court of the Gentiles, the court of the ethne, the court of the nations. Why does that matter? This is the very reason that Jesus was angry. This area was the place where, again, the people of Israel were God's chosen people and, the, and, and everyone else was called the Gentiles. And this area of the court of the Gentiles was the place where anyone that was not a part of Israel that desired to worship God would come and do so. And you see that Israel being God's chosen people, it was not meant for their privilege, prestige and power, but that's what they had made it to be. The people of Israel, they were chosen as the ones God would reveal himself to the world so that all would come to know him. That's always been God's mandate. And yet, what did they do? The people of Israel had taken that place where the outsiders were meant to be welcomed in and pushed them out in order to, be, to make it a place of extortive personal profit and gain. 
Jesus calls to this in verse seven, as he quotes Isaiah in verse 17, when he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And I don't know how often you've heard this story. I, we we got to be careful not to let this fly by. You know, Israel, again, God's chosen people, had turned away from God. Because they have turned away from God, they lost their identity. They lost their reason for existing. They lost their purpose. They lost it all. And out of this new selfish identity, they pursued selfish purposes. And in doing so, in doing so they turned to the, the things that selfishness knows. Power, prestige, comfort, nationality, and race as their means of identity, as their means of purpose, and as their means of deliverance. And in doing so, they also did not love and welcome in the outsider. They did not love and welcome in their neighbor. They did not welcome in and love the very ones God intended to redeem, right? God did not intend just to redeem Israel. He, he, he intended always to redeem the entire world. And, and you know, let's, let's, let's kind of zoom ahead to us. We've seen this played out personally and in our world over and over again. I mean, again, think about these things we said they turn to power, prestige, comfort, nationality, race, right? Gender as a means of identity, purpose, and deliverance. We've seen when we turn to these things other than turning to God, what he says, what he's called us to, what he's created us for, what he's commanded us to be, these things always come up short. Instead of deliverance, instead of wholeness, instead of peace, we get conflicts, wars, violence, poverty, disease, and even death. So in this moment, we see that Israel had denied God in his very purpose for them, right? And in this moment, we see that purpose was to glorify him. And in doing so, to as God's glory is made known, he draws men to himself. And so therefore, their purpose was to usher the world into knowing Yahweh God. And man, just don't miss the heart of God. It is always, yes, for his glory, but also that that comes through the knowing, knowing and being known. This heart of rebellion actually led to them surrendering their very God-given identity, and again, denying God himself. Not just veering off course in their religious actions. And again, this is true for us. Let's bring it to us once again. We have to face the stark reality that when we turn to things other than God for deliverance, we are denying him to be our worthy, holy, sovereign God. And also at the same time, just like Israel, the things we often turn to for identity are the very things that rob us of our true identity that brings true peace, freedom, wholeness, and joy. One created for his glory, for holiness, and residing relationship with him out of love. So what are we to do with this? What's our response? Our call our call to response comes from a moment Jesus has with a fig tree that sandwiches this, this moment in the temple. So 
we, we back up a little bit to the morning before he gets to the temple. He's on his way, and we pick up in verses 12 through 14, and then we're also going to read uh, verse 20. It says, On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. Jesus was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And then now we're going to zoom past the moment in the temple that we just looked at. We're going to go to the next morning. And his disciples heard it. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. So at first glance, uh, this passage could be a little confusing if you caught it. Like it says, Jesus cursed a fig tree and made it die because it didn't yield figs when it wasn't time for it to yield figs. Did you catch that? It says, for it was not the season for figs. So what's going on here, right? It's, it, it, th this, was, this was the time of Passover, so that would have been March or April, and these trees did not yield ripe, frit, ripe, ripe figs until May. So what's happening? Is Jesus just throwing a temper tantrum that he didn't get what he wanted? He didn't get the snack that he wanted? Is he being petulant? He's not. What Jesus is doing is he's setting up an object lesson for what was about to come in the temple, right? He's walking with his disciples. They're, they're, again, as Jesus, he's always teaching along the way. And then they're going into the temple. Jesus is knowing. He knows what's coming. Remember, they, they went there the night before. Now they're heading back. He's setting up an object lesson for them for what was to come in the temple. Because what did it say? It said he saw off, he said, from seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, from a, from a distance, the tree would look full of life. But as you get up close, you would see it would be exposed to have no fruit. And this object lesson that Jesus is setting up, he's saying this is what the people of Israel were doing. Their expression of faith had become all about their own power and prestige and just an outward presentation. Yes, they had all the signs of life, right? Just like the leaf from a distance. They have all the signs of life with the bustling, with the bustling temple that was full and, and acts of sacrifice and piety, but their hearts did not belong to God. And they were yielding no actual fruit Right? It's not just about piety. It's not just about living the letter of the law. It's about it actually living out and achieving the very heart of God. And in this moment, what we see the fruit to be is that the people of Israel were meant to be a beacon to the entire world as the people of Israel lived out the commands and character of God that would result in the world coming to him. And you have to see, as you follow Jesus to the cross, you are called to a life that doesn't just resemble something that looks good on the outside. That's, that's not following Jesus to the cross. That's some kind of superficial morality or some kind of, of, of relativistic deism or some kind of just kind of soothing of your own conscience. To follow Jesus to the cross is to be invited into and called to bear the fruit of the gospel in season and out. And we have to see that in, you know, we, we live in this life. And when we encounter Jesus, 
when we are saved by grace through faith and we're made new, we are given a new name, a new life, a new identity, and we are given the Holy Spirit. Guess what? We are eight, the season is always now because we have the source of life. We always have the right conditions to bear fruit because of the abiding life in Christ. This life that we have in Christ from now to, to, to our time of being united with him in eternity is our season to bear fruit. And so we see this call, this call that calls us again to sacrifice, to follow Jesus to the cross and to say, you know, I understand I don't get to call a time out on my life being, being a part of proclaiming and living out the very heart of the gospel, experiencing its riches personally, but not keeping it as our own place of comfort and prestige. But again, understanding that our fruit is meant to beckon the entire world into Christ. So yes, there is call and purpose to this, but I'm, I'm so grateful for what Jesus followed as he explained this in 11, in 11 21 through 25. <clears throat> Excuse me. He said, and Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. And Jesus answered them. He said, it's kind of a funny response. He says, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. And if having anything against anyone, if, if you have anything against anyone, so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. You know, you think about this, you read this, and at first glance, this may seem kind of unrelated to the way this object lesson tied into the temple. And you would expect Jesus to say, well, that, re that represents the, the tree that, you know, that looks alive but is actually dead. Right? An unhealthy tree doesn't produce fruit. That's kind of what you would expect Jesus to say. But in his response to his object lesson, he says, what does he say? He says, have faith in God. Sounds a little trite, honestly. Like that's kind of when we're facing trials and you get that person that comes to you and just says, have faith, brother. Have faith, sister. It's kind of frustrating sometimes. And that feels kind of like what's happening. Jesus says, have faith in God. But what's happening here is amazing. Jesus is saying this. He's saying, as you seek to live the life given to me, to bear fruit in, all, in, 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 every, in every season, Saying, yes, it's difficult. Yes, it's beyond you. But what he says is trust in me. What he says to them, what he says to you and me, trust in me, trust in Jesus. The result of your efforts and life when you trust in anything else but Jesus and give your life to anything else but Jesus will be a withered root, right? That's what we see here. It will be a withered root. It will be destruction. It will not fulfill. It will not last. It will not sustain. It will not bring you wholeness and peace and freedom. Jesus says, trust in me. So yes, our lives should represent the realities 
of the accomplished work of Jesus in us. That's the fruit. When we daily surrender and trust Jesus, we will bear his fruit. Right? It's the, again, it's an internal fruit of wholeness and peace and, and, and relationship with God, but it's an external fruit. And again, that's a lot of what people of Israel are being called out here. And that fruit that we see is, is freedom in him, like we said, and that our lives necessarily are committed to his purpose of redeeming the world. So the life that follows Jesus to the cross bears fruit or it represents as we talked about at the beginning. And we see that we are called to be intentional, to put effort into this. We have to put effort, but yet we are not left to earn. Let's just repeat what we've said many times before. Effort is great. Earning is wrong. Jesus, in God's grace has not left it to us to earn our way because that's impossible. That's what Jesus did. The one who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And in that, we are whole and accepted and restored. We are invited to be before we do. Remember that Jesus says, trust in me. That's how you bear fruit. Walk with me, abide with me as I abide in you. And know this, Christ has made you totally new. You've been totally and utterly claimed by the blood of Jesus. Your life is freed up and should necessarily give evidence to the reality of Christ being your king, your liberator and redeemer. So yes, guess what? You do get to be human. You don't get to, you know, we're not called to be perfect. Only Jesus is perfect. So you get to be human and all that comes with it. What comes with it, right? Stress, fear, weariness, depression, anxiety, ambition. Let's go the other way. Ambition, success, talent. All that comes with our humanity. But the question is this. Do you walk through and pursue these things in a way that testifies to Christ's lordship over your life and his continuing transforming presence in your life? Again, just a few chapters ago, we were told to take up our cross daily and follow him. Does your humanity evidence the meeting of your humanity with the grace of Jesus? So we do have a season of fruitfulness, and that is this life. We are meant to live with the hope of eternity in Christ, but see the urgency in this temporal moment. We, we started off by reading a quote uh, from Bonhoeffer's book, The Cost of Discipleship. I want to back up a little bit and read more of what led us into that statement from, Bo from Bonhoeffer. <coughs> Excuse me. It says, The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. 
So, I, I imagine most of you hearing this know that you are of limited capacity. Know that you are sinful. Know that you will come up short. And our tendency, our flesh, and the lie of Satan is to, to somehow compromise our conscience to defeat us before we ever begin. To, to, to prevent us from walking in the victory of Jesus. But we have to remember what, what was proclaimed in Romans 8. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And with that, I want us to, to end with asking these questions. What are the areas of your life that are not evidencing the fruit of Christ's work in you and the life given to him? And as you consider that, Ask the Holy Spirit to examine your heart and reveal to you why there is no fruit in these areas. We don't want to just be about behavior. We want to allow God to dig into our heart. And then as that work is being done, then remember, let's remember this fruit is outward. And so then we need to ask, how can you bring these needs, these areas into the light of freedom? Right? Remember, as we're told in Ephesians, that which is exposed to light becomes light. And so is it that you need to confess to a brother or a sister? Is it need that you need to seek out godly gospel-rooted counsel? Is it to share a testimony of what God is doing in this area? Or is it simply just to take that step of obedience in faith, even though you know it's so far beyond you? What's your opportunity today? And then what is an area of your life the Lord has been prompting you to surrender or step into that you have been hesitant in? I want to encourage you to ask those questions, seek the Lord, and then share, share with others, especially those in your house church. When you gather in your house churches and they say, what has the Lord been doing in your life this week? Share these things. Share, because guess what? You're giving a testimony to God's faithfulness. You're going to be exhorting and building up the, your brothers and sisters around you. Our church will be healthier. God will be glorified. And through that, the world will come to know Jesus. And lastly, as we do all of this, to prevent us from putting the chain of legalism and shame around our neck, let's preach the gospel to ourselves daily. What is the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the good news that you indeed had lost it all in our rebellion and sin against God? and the separation we experienced from him because of that, but that God gave it all in the giving of his son, Jesus. And that as we trust in him, we gain more than we ever lost because of what God did in his love, in his grace, and for his glory. Not because of what you've done. You have not earned his love. He loves you because he loves you. Preach that to yourself daily as we work in these things. Enjoy the opportunity to be before you do. Let's be a people that, that surrender daily to represent and bear fruit well by the power of God and the Holy Spirit through the testimony and work of his word. Trust in Jesus. Let's walk together in him. Guys, we are better together for the glory of God. Hope to see you soon. God bless.